We're going to depart from our study in the Sermon on the Mount just for this week and talk about, it's hard to have a Christmas day almost just a couple of days away, not to have a Christmas sermon of some sort. Um, and we know that this time of the year we should be focused on Jesus and who He is and what He's done, but it's real easy to forget the real meaning of Christmas. Right, there are two attitudes that I think dominate this season that make it difficult or make it easy for us to, to forget its real meaning. The first is reckless consumerism. Right, during the Christmas season, we're encouraged to spend, spend, spend. It's almost as if we're challenged to outdo ourselves from the year before. Uh, and every year at this time, reckless consumerism, it leads people to spend their way into greater debt and to financial disasters. Right, we are culturally conditioned at this point to spend beyond our means. Uh, the second attitude that makes it difficult to focus on Jesus and the real meaning of the season is what I would call Christless spiritualism. And what I mean by that is that at this time of the year, all kinds of feel-good movies come out and talk about the goodness of man. They talk about having peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and all the miracles that happen around Christmas. But according to the, the movies and the TV shows, it is the nameless spirit of Christmas that does all of these kinds of amazing things at this time of the year. Right? And now, as Christians, we know, we know that reckless consumerism is basically covetousness, and that covetousness is idolatry according to Colossians 3.5. We know that Jesus is the, the reason for the season, that He is the reason that there is peace and goodwill towards man. We know that he is the one who has come to give us life and life more abundantly. And yet, even though we know these things, it's easy to get caught up in the world or in the in the attitudes of the world around us. So how do we how do we keep from just falling into that cat that pattern and enacting like the world at this time of the year? How can we make Christmas meaningful? So I was thinking about that this week and praying about it, looking at the gospels, at various passages that talk about the Christmas story. And there wasn't any one Christmas story that really stood out to me. But there were various parts of certain, of certain ones and certain gospel passages that did. And they kind of came together in a way that I think kind of help us, that I think if we put this into practice, it'll help us to focus on Jesus, to make sure that Christmas is meaningful to us. But, and the, the key truth for us today is that we make Christmas meaningful by focusing on the meaning of Christmas. Right? And that's a simple thing, really. Make Christmas meaningful by focusing on the real meaning of Christmas. And what I want to do this morning is somewhat quickly-ish, uh, give us three ways to make Christmas meaningful by focusing on the meaning of Christmas. First, we want to worship the God of Christmas. All right, worship the God of Christmas. I read an article several years ago by a theologian by the name of J.I. Packer on worship. And just a part of what he said is that worship is to recognize, to worship God is to recognize His worth or worthiness. It is to look Godward and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. And I like how Packer explained worship as recognizing God's worthiness. Um, I don't think there is much that is more important in our lives than having a time where we worship God. Worshiping God should be an essential part of who we are and how that we live our lives. And the Bible tells us a lot about how to worship God and why 
we worship God. But one of the great worship passages is actually in one of the Christmas stories. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Page 574 in your pew Bible. Now the story at this point, Mary sings this song of praise to the Lord. This is not long after the angel Gabriel has come to her, told her that she is going to bear a child even though she is a virgin, and that this child will be called the Son of the Most High. He would be given the throne of his father, David, and he would reign over Israel, and of his kingdom there would be no end. Now despite her fear and apprehensions about what the angel had told her, Mary simply said, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me as you have said. And after thinking about this for a few days, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. And it was during this visit that she broke out into a song of praise to God. Look at what it says. It said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowliest state of his maidservant. For henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Now, as we look at this song of praise, Mary gives us three reasons why God is worthy of our worship. The first is that God is merciful. Several times in the first few verses, she talks about the mercy of the Lord in verse 48, that that God had regarded the lowly estate of her, his maidservant. That even though God was mighty, he had done great things for her. His name was holy and that his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary understood that God was her Savior. She understood the fact that this was an act of the mercy of God, that she had done nothing to merit any of the things that God had done for her. She didn't merit the salvation. She didn't merit getting to be the mother of Jesus. All of this was God's great mercy for her. Mercy, God's mercy, is one of the main reasons that we worship the Lord. The mercy that He has bestowed upon us in our lives. Now when we come to worship music, I like old hymns, but I also like modern songs. But with old hymns, there is something that I really like. And that is that most of them, many of them, they speak about what we were before we came to Christ. And I think that's important. Right? Not in a, I was miserable, wretched, blind, and I need to be beat down because of that. But more in a, I need to remember what I was before that. I always think about the story about the, the tax collector and the Pharisee who went to the Lord to pray. Remember the story? The, the tax collector stood before the Lord and he looked up and he said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not as other men, even as this tax collector over here. I, I give a tithe of all that I possess. I, uh, I'm all of these things, Lord. But the tax collector... Jesus said he would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Right? And Jesus said that the tax collector, he's the one that went away justified. He's the one that went away with a relationship with God and not the Pharisee. And as we look at that, I think a lesson that we learn is we all, if we came to Jesus, we all came as the tax collector. I mean, if we're truly born again, disciples of Jesus Christ, there was a day where we knelt in prayer and we said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But what happens if we're not careful is that over time we become the Pharisee. Over time, we get to a place where we forget what we were. We forget what we came from. We forget that there was a day. When we just cried out for God's great mercy toward us and we begin to say things like, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And the old hymns, many of the old hymns do a good job of reminding us of that. Of course, the classic would be Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. You know, those old songs were penned by folks who knew the great mercy of their God. They knew what they were before they came to Christ. And the longer that they were in Christ and the longer that they were with Christ, it it, it didn't make them forget. It it didn't make them begin to think, God is sure lucky that I'm on his team. The, The more they knew God, the better they knew him the more they understood the depths and the riches and the greatness, the mercy of their God. It is very important for us to remember the mercy of God. For truly, it is easy for us to get to a place where we forget how desperately we needed a Savior. To forget that at one point, We were in a lowly state and the great and the awesome God of heaven regarded us. It is easy for us to forget that though we are lowly, God is mighty and yet he has done great things for us. Not because we deserved it. Because of his mercy and his grace for us. At one point we all lived in sin. At one point, we all rebelled against God's will. At one point, we all turned away. But God loved us. And God was merciful to us. And so He saved us from our sins. We did not save ourselves. All we contributed to our salvation was the need to be saved. Jesus, He did all the heavy lifting. Various times we need to remind ourselves of the mercy of our God. And when we know how merciful He has been to us, it would motivate us to worship Him and to live for Him. To know the amazing grace and amazing mercy of our God should make us want to show His worth to the world in how we live and in how we worship. So we worship God because He is merciful, but we also worship God because He is powerful. Verse 49, Mary said, He has done mighty things. In verse 51, says, He has shown His, shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud 
in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the lowly. Mary knew the stories of what God had done. Mary knew the stories of God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. She knew that, that, that really the nation of Israel, just its very existence, was a testimony to the power, the greatness of her God. That while they were slaves in Egypt, that God did signs and wonders through Moses, His servant. And each sign and each wonder was actually an act of judgment on the false gods of Egypt. And all to demonstrate that there is only one God. And it's not Ra, and it's not the Nile, and it's not Pharaoh, but it is Yahweh. God's power had had been seen in in Israel's life, not only in Egypt, but as they came out and as they walked in the wilderness for 40 years, God gave them victory. He gave them food. He provided water from the rock. When they went into the promised land, He rained hailstones down upon His enemies. He caused the sun to stand still. He had just demonstrated over and over again. He was awesome. He was powerful. He was mighty. So Mary praised Him for that. You and I, we too must remind ourselves the power and the might of our God. We must remind ourselves of the stories from the Exodus. We must remind ourselves of the teaching from Ephesians that says that our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. We need to read the miracles of Jesus and know that He really did those things. They're not cool stories that He is that powerful and that mighty. We need to read Revelation and see it as God deciding, I'm bringing the world to a close and no one can stop me. We need to even look at our own lives and remind ourselves of the great things God has done for us. How many of us look at our lives and we can see answers to prayer? We can see things that God has done that that cannot be explained away in any other way. That it's just an act of God on our behalf. And when we're reminded of the power, the majesty and the greatness of our God, the natural response to that is to bow and worship. To live for His glory. Our God is awesome. And He is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship because He is merciful, He is powerful, and because He has He is faithful. Verse 53 and 54. God has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, and spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His seed forever. She's just saying, God has always kept His word to us. God made promises to Abraham. And down through the ages, despite our unfaithfulness, she sort of says, God has helped us. God has remembered and kept His word. And He has done all that He said He would do. She understood that God had been faithful. And would never be unfaithful. That God always keeps His promises. The character of God is such that God always 
keeps His Word. He always does exactly what He says He will do. To me, that's always an amazing thing because we don't know anyone who is always faithful to their Word. Now, we may know people that try to keep their Word. But even the most faithful person we know, circumstances beyond their control can keep them from doing what they say they're going to do. Things that are out of their power. Things that they could not have imagined or planned. But that's not so with God. God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. There is no unforeseen circumstance in our life or in this world that will prevent God from doing what He has said He would do. God has no lack of power. And He has no lack of ability. And so His promises, the Bible says, they never fall to the ground. They always come to pass. If we were to go around the room, every one of us that are disciples of Jesus Christ, we would have testimonies of God's faithfulness in our lives. Of Him comforting us in our tribulations. Strengthening us in our weaknesses. Encouraging us in our discouragements. Restoring us in our sins. Helping us in our problems. Things that He had done that again, we would say, this I know is God. And He did those things because God is always faithful. To know that we serve a God who will always keep His promises and will always do what He has said He would do, it is an awesome thing. And it should lead us to worship Him. To fall on our knees, to lift up His worth with our mouth and to live a life that demonstrates the greatness and the goodness of our God. To make Christmas meaningful by focusing on the meaning of Christmas. Make time to worship God. Make time to just, those three things right there. Just go home this week and write down, how have you experienced God's mercy? How have you experienced God's power? How have you experienced God's faithfulness? And then praise Him for that. And if you really want to be radical with your worship of God, tell someone how God has been merciful to you. Tell someone how God has been powerful in your life. Tell someone how God has been faithful to you. All of that is worship God. So we want to worship the God of Christmas, but we also want to embrace the purpose of Christmas. We find the purpose of Christmas in Matthew's account of Gabriel talking to Joseph. Turn to Matthew 1. you hit Malachi, you've gone back too far. Matthew 1, we're going to start at 18. It should be page 537. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away Secretly. Now let me stop there about what's going on. Engagements in this day were pretty significant things. And they could not be broken off easily. An engagement was essentially the same as marriage without actually living together as a married couple. 
It had the same strength of commitment that they were supposed to have. For Mary to come up pregnant before the wedding day indicated that she had been unfaithful to Joseph. Now, Joseph had a right to divorce her because of this. But he didn't want to put, make a public example of her because what was, the, what was the punishment for adultery in Old Testament times? It was death. It was being stoned to death. Had Joseph gone up and said, she has been unfaithful for she's pregnant outside of wedlock, they would have taken her to the gates of the city and they would have stoned her to death. But Joseph did not want to do that. So he's looking for a way to make it, just break it off quietly. And while he thinks about it, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And there's the purpose of Christmas. Jesus was born that He could save us from our sins. Christmas is just as much about our salvation as Easter is. I was thinking about that and if you're familiar with world history, you know that on May 8th, 1945, Germany surrendered to the Allies and the war in Europe ended. But the decisive turning point that doomed Germany it was long before that, on June 6, 1944, when the invasion of Normandy began. It was the invasion of Normandy that led to the surrender of Germany. In a similar way, the cross is what defeated Satan and sin and death. But the day that all of those things were doomed was Christmas Day when God invaded earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born so that He could Die. He was born to be the Savior of mankind. Now the question could always come, why would I need a Savior? Well, we need a Savior because we have sinned against God. Romans 6 or 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages, the earned, the earning of that sin is death. That's all pretty serious. But again, we'd have a question. But what I don't feel like a sinner. I mean, what if I, I just think I'm basically a good person who doesn't deserve the death of the sinner? Well, we feel this way because we don't understand God's standard for righteousness. We don't understand what God has laid out as the standard for what is right and what is wrong. We don't understand what sin is. right? The Bible tells us that sin is breaking the law. That is the essence of sin. Now as it's meant here, it refers to the Ten Commandments, which would make up God's absolute standard of righteousness. We don't have time to look at all Ten Commandments this morning. But if we were to look at all Ten Commandments and what God said to do and not do there, we could then go through the Old Testament and we go through the New Testament, we could see that every moral command would some way relate back to those ten. Now the thing about the Ten Commandments as a standard of righteousness is that they're, a, they're kind of a pass or fail test. Right? To, to be considered righteous by keeping the law would mean that we 
kept the law perfectly from birth to death. Right? Even one minor violation of God's standard is enough to fail the test and leave us sinners who have earned the wages of that sin. And it doesn't matter how big or how small the sin is. It is the, the violation itself that is the infraction that matters. So the Bible says in Romans 3, 19 and 20, the better we know God's law, the more we realize we haven't kept it. That's an interesting thing. Because there's a lot of times we could look in just kind of a surface, cursory way, we could look at the Ten Commandments and we could think, oh, I've, I've done pretty good. But when we really understand what it means, right? so here's an example. Shall have no other gods before me. The very first commandment. Now, just a simplistic view of that would be easy, right? Well, I've never worshipped Baal. Never worshipped Moloch. I've never worshipped Buddha or Allah or any of the Hindu gods. Therefore, I'm good. But, the command to have no other gods before the Lord is far more than don't worship a pagan god. Right? To, to have perfectly kept this law, we would have had to have made God the supreme object of our love and devotion. Every moment of every day of our life. Right now, that couldn't be in word only. It would also have to be in attitude, in action, in reaction, in values, and in our priorities. I mean, if there has ever been even a moment of our lives where we put something over what God wanted us to do, then we have had another God. Ahead of the Lord. Ever I knew God wanted me to love my enemies. And I chose to say hateful things to them. Because I wanted to. Then in that moment I have worshipped the God of self. If ever in my life. I have done anything. Because I wanted to do it despite God said not to. I have worshipped the God of self. If I have ever. Ever done anything that God has said not to do. Or not done something that God has said to do. For any reason. I have worshipped the God of friendship. I have worshipped the God of sex. I have worshipped the God of consumerism. I have worshipped the God of materialism. I have had another God. Before the Lord. That's just one command. If we were to look at all ten. It would be exactly the same way. And what that does is that leaves us. Having broken God's law. I mean none of us. No one. Not just us. No one. Could honestly look at the ten commandments. And come away with anything other than the fact that they had violated God's law. They're guilty of sinning against God. And, and the reality is they are then worthy and they have earned the wages of those sins. And that's why Jesus came. Because there is a, a wrath, a punishment for sin. And Jesus came to absorb that wrath in our place. All that, that you and I have earned because of our rebellion. All that we had earned because of our sin. Jesus absorbed on the cross. The physical punishment of being beaten. 
and having crowns put upon his head and being nailed to the cross, the, the humiliation of hanging there naked while he died, that was all bad, but that was not the worst. The worst was when the, the full judgment of God that was poured out upon him and he took hell in our place on the cross. That's what he came to save us from. His death wasn't the death of a martyr for the cause. His death wasn't poor pitiful Jesus who did good things and yet the people hated him. His death wasn't the death of someone who made the wrong people angry. His death was that of a sacrifice on our behalf. So that he could save us from our justly deserved punishment. And he endured our wrath until he cried out, it is finished. He was taken off the cross and he was laid in a tomb. God's wrath had been fully satisfied and the penalty for sins had been paid. And when we believe on Jesus, our unrighteousness is taken away. And His righteousness is given to us at that point. And we are free, forever free from condemnation for our sins. And that's, that's what Christmas is all about. That is the purpose of Christmas. So we make Christmas meaningful by, by focusing on the meaning of Christmas and being sure that you and I, on a personal level, that we have embraced this purpose. That we have repented of our sins. That we have believed on Jesus Christ. When we're children, Christmas is about the gifts and the stuff. But like the Apostle Paul, when we grow up, we kind of put away the childish things and we make sure that we know that Christmas is about the Savior. And we make sure that our hearts and our souls, that we are right in the sight of our God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we have embraced Jesus as our Savior, and Christmas is just meaningful because who He is and what He's done. So we worship the God of Christmas, embrace the purpose of Christmas, and then finally live for the Christ of Christmas. The natural response to being saved is to live for Jesus. I mean, when we have been saved by Jesus, it makes sense to then start to live by Jesus. When Jesus calls us, He calls us to a life, not merely an event. But salvation, that moment of salvation, that's an event. The Spirit speaks to us, reveals our need. We repent. We turn to Jesus. We cry out. We're saved. That's an event. But that's not the end of it. That's not where it all ends. That's not what it's... It doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. Once we have embraced Jesus, we are called then to a life and the life of serving Him, doing His will. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Now this isn't what we would call a Christmas passage, but Mark's gospel does not have a Christmas passage. 
It just begins. But it's still early in the life of Jesus. And look at verse 16. Mark 1 verse 16. And as he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone down a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants, and they went after him. There is Jesus' call, not to an event, but to a life. In verse 17, it's a great verse we should memorize. Because it gives us an idea of the ways that we live for Jesus when He calls. Right? We, we follow Jesus. I mean, He says that throughout there, He said, follow me. The idea of following Jesus... It is more than maybe what we often think about it. A lot of times when we think about our relationship with Jesus, we think about it in terms of spending time with Jesus. We pray, we read our Bible, we come to church. And all of those are, I would never minimize how important those things are. We definitely need to have a time of daily reading our Bible. Definitely need to have a daily time of prayer. Definitely need to make church a priority. But all of that, If that's all that we do, we're really just visiting Jesus and and we're not really living for Jesus. Jesus wants more than a daily visit. Jesus wants us to live with Him throughout our day. He wants to be a part of our lives no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing or whatever's going on. Jesus wants us to go about our regular tasks with a constant thought that He is With us. And if we're going to to follow Jesus, we have to train ourselves to see Jesus as a a constant companion in our life. But our goal isn't to switch activities in order to be with Jesus. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you to the ends of the age. He's he's always with us. Our, Our job isn't to, in the middle of work, switch over to read our Bible so that we can be with Jesus. Our job, our goal, is as we're doing our job, as we're going through our day, to be aware of the fact that He is there. He is a part of what we're doing. That He is on the job with us. He's at the gym with us. That wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that Jesus is an active participant of our lives. Right? That it's just an always a constant thing. When the disciples left their nets to follow Jesus, they didn't just go and talk to Him and then go back. And then a day later go talk to Him some more and go back. They, they just went with Him and were with Him forever. And to the rest of his earthly life at that point. Jesus, today you're going to go home. Tomorrow, I don't know, some may work, even though it's Christmas Eve, some may not. But whatever you do this afternoon, whatever you do tomorrow, Jesus is just as with you there as he is right now. He's just as with you when you're on Facebook as he is when you're reading your Bible. He's just as with you when you're at the gym as He is when you're drinking coffee and praying. He's just as with you when you're at Walmart as He is when you're listening to Christian music in your car. 
Following Jesus means being aware that He is always there. But at the same time, it, it does mean that we follow Jesus. Right? That, that He leads and we follow. I mean, we're not His equal. We don't give Him advice. We're not on His counsel. He is Lord. We are servant. We go where He says to go. We do what He says to do. We do it when He says it. Now, as parents, have you ever had a time where you're trying to take your kids through store, through a store and they want to go to the toy aisle, they want to go look at the fish, and you won't do it, and so they're pulling. I want to go look at the toys. Huh? And they're pulling against, and they're falling, and they're screaming, and, and you're holding their hand, and you're trying to drag them along, and you're, you're trying not to just... Have a fit on them at Walmart, right? So it's not on Facebook. The preacher was beating his daughters at Walmart, right? You're trying to keep it under control, but they're not going where you want them to go. They're not following where you're leading. You know, the reality is sometimes we're a lot like children. Jesus is saying, go here. Do this. I'm going this way. I want you to go with me. And we go, but no, I want to go look at the toys. But no, I want to go do this instead. A part of following Jesus. Stop doing that. That wherever He wants us to go, that's where we're going to go. And we go when He wants us to go. But that's a part of the life that Jesus has called us to. With Him always, but with Him leading the way. So we follow Jesus, but we also cooperate with transformation from Jesus. Notice that Jesus says, follow me and I will make you. He was going to turn them into something. And we see that he did. Right? If you're familiar with the, the story of the twelve, the men in the Gospels were not particularly clever. They were not particularly bold. They were not particularly anything special. But by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, they are turning the world upside down. Those same twelve. Plus the others that are one to Christ through their ministry. What happened? How did they, how did they see such a, a massive change? They cooperated with Jesus. He was working in them to make them into something different. I mean, change is a, an essential part of following Jesus. Jesus takes a persecutor like Saul and he turns him into an apostle. Named Paul. He goes from trying to shut down the church to planting churches. He, he just, he, Jesus is in the life changing business. And if we're going to follow him, that's a part of it. I mean, even when we see this, they're doing one thing, aren't they? They're working on nets. Jesus says, follow me. And they have to change right then. Change what they're doing so they can follow him. There is no following Jesus without changing. He is always going to change who we are, how we live, how we talk, our attitudes, our values, our priorities, our actions and our reactions. Jesus is going to change us if we follow him. And if the reason, the reason he changes us is because he loves us. Never, never misunderstand that Jesus loves us as we are. 
He doesn't love a future version of yourself that's better and more perfect than the version that you are right now. But at the same time, He loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. Because there is a better version of you that He can make you into. So yes, Jesus loves you just like you are, but He loves you too much to stay that way forever. I mean, we do this with our kids, don't we? We love our kids, but we encourage them to change, to grow, to be more mature, to be more of what they're supposed to be. Not because we don't love them, but because we love them too much for them to be 20 and still living in diapers and being baby fed, don't we? In the same way, Jesus loves us too much for us to live in spiritual diapers. He wants us to grow and change and be like Him. So He will change us. But He doesn't force it. We have to cooperate. The disciples had to stop what they were doing and go with Him. And then He would say, do this, and then they would have to choose to do what He said to do. The changes that Jesus wants to make in your life, it's going to be up to you. I mean, here's a, here's a hard thing. If you are no different spiritually than you were last year at this time, two years ago or three years ago at this time, it's not because you've arrived. It's not because you've reached perfection. It's not because Jesus isn't working. It's because you're not cooperating. It's you. It's me. That's the hang up. If we're not being changed. Jesus is always at work in his people. Always trying to make us more like him. Our job. Our job is to cooperate. Let him make us to what he wants us to be. So we follow Jesus. We cooperate with Jesus. But then we join Jesus. He's going to make them to be fishers of men. this point, they don't have any idea what that means. Over time, He's going to elaborate, teach them, let them understand that their mission is to make disciples of all nations. The mission that Jesus gave the twelve is the mission that Jesus has given to you and I. The mission of making disciples of all nations. It's not the mission of the church. Some nebulous entity called the church. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is your mission. To make disciples of others. As we go through life. We should all do what we can. To lead people to follow Jesus. Now listen, I'm not... I'm not a big fan of door-knocking evangelism. I'm not saying just walk up to a random stranger and ask them, do you know where you're going to go if you die? Or why would God let you into heaven? I mean, if God leads you to do that, then by all means do it. Some people are gifted that way. Most of us are not. But if God's mission for you and I is that we would help make disciples, we would help people come to know Jesus Christ then doesn't it make sense that He is going to put people in our lives that need Him? He is going to work it in such a way that there will be opportunities throughout our lives where we can talk about spiritual things. But I think about, like in the book of Esther, it has one of the greatest lines of all time. 
Esther's been taken, made the, the wife of the king. The Jews are all about to die. And her uncle Mordecai says that you are brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. Right? You are where you are, Esther. Not by chance or circumstance, but by the sovereign will. Almighty God. Man, you, you, we all, we are where we are in life for such a time as this. God has placed the people in our lives that are in our lives, not by chance or circumstance, but according to His sovereign will that we can be lights that shine to them, that we can plant seeds of the gospel in them, that we can do what we can to reach them. And again, I'm not talking about forcing something. Forced conversations rarely go well. Forced conversations are often going to blow up. But how many people that we interact with on a regular basis have problems that we could say, I'll pray with you about? How many people go through things that we've gone through and we can say, here's how Jesus helped me in this time. How many people are having problems with decision making? And we can say, here's a Bible verse that has helped me make a right decision. I mean, the opportunities to have spiritual gospel Jesus conversations, they exist in our lives. But we have to be aware of it. We have to join the mission and we have to take them. There are opportunities now, they're going to come in a variety of ways. They may come at the gym. They may come at Walmart. They may come while we're out to eat. I mean, just think about all of the activities that you're going to take part in this week. How many opportunities will there be to not force, but to just have a natural, spiritual Jesus conversation? Here's how Jesus helped me. Here's what Christmas means to me. Here's what I've been praying for. Here's something I read in the Bible this week. Here's how it helped me. Those are natural opportunities. And we are meant to take them. We are meant to see them, to take advantage of them, because part of what Jesus is making us all into is fishers of men. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. And people naturally sometimes, I guess, used to be more naturally talk about Jesus this time of the year, but less and less so. But as disciples of Jesus, we can still be intentional about it. We can still talk about the meaning of Christmas. We can still... Bring it up in ways that don't feel forced, that won't offend, and that will plant seeds or give us opportunities to actually share the gospel. We have to be intentional about making Christmas meaningful. We have to be intentional about joining the mission that Jesus has for us and living for the Christ of Christmas. Let's bow our heads. Let me ask, what would it take for you right now to make Christmas, this Christmas week, meaningful? Eternally meaningful? 
do you need to make some extra time to worship the God of Christmas? Even if you just set aside, set aside time and work through the different ways that He was merciful and powerful and faithful to you and prayed those things back to Him. Do you need to embrace the purpose of Christmas? Maybe you've never truly repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ. A decision you have to make on your own. And the first thing you need to do is just to embrace Christ as your Savior. Or do you need to begin to live the Christ of Christmas? Is there an area of your life where you know you're not following Him? Are you resisting the change He's trying to bring into your life? Are you resistant to joining His mission? And you need to surrender that. Whatever the need to make Christmas meaningful, let's take this time and let's all do what we have to do. We're going to have a few minutes to pray where we are. And you you talk to God. You respond in the ways that He's dealing with you about this morning.